this beautiful morning, fall, mildly rainy fall morning. You can get up any kind of the morning and worship the Lord and also welcome the smaller gathering here. There's a number of people at the, on the choir and some other people at other places, but it's glad to see you all here. I uh, appreciate the opening, Brother Allen. And I guess, I mean, I knew this, but when you brought out about uh, there's purely spiritual beings and there's purely physical beings and man has a foot in both camps, he's both physical and spiritual, the way you explained it just, hmm, yeah, that's interesting. And then we think of, you were talking about miracles, the power of God and the occult. That's both in the spiritual and in the physical. <laughs> that when we think of miracles, we often think of physical. Something is suspended or something is coincidental that, coincidental that could not have happened physically, naturally. It's, uh, in the physical realm, God breaks through. But since we're also spiritual beings, the devil and God do miracles in that realm also. And that's actually the true miracles that happens when a darkened heart gets the light of the Lord shining in and changes that heart. That is the true miracle. Because that is the effect of someone who's been in the power of Satan and had a miracle happen and had been translated into the kingdom of light. That's the true miracle. And yes, God does do miracles in the physical realm, but he does them in the spiritual I appreciate that, Alan, and uh, put our hearts, thoughts to that. <clears throat> Let us do pause for a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you this morning. You, with your love, your power, your almighty power, you have spoken not only into this world, but you have spoken into our hearts. Your power has had an effect on each of our hearts. Also, Lord, we want to recognize the power that Satan can have and does have at times in our hearts. But, Lord, we reject him and we yield ourselves to you and ask you, Lord, to move and minister and control in our hearts and collectively together. So, Lord, we look to you to move this morning. Yes, again, in our hearts, that its effect is in the physical realm and in the world, but also has most an effect in the lives and the hearts of those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I will be finishing a message that I had started two weeks ago on disciplines, discipline and personal finances. And uh, it got, I realized it got way too long. And by the time I would have got to the end of it, no one would have been listening anymore, I'm afraid. So I decided to break it up. So I'll do a little bit of review so that we can all catch up. I have, I didn't, I decided not to hand out the uh, forms that I had last week, that the worksheet that went with it. I don't know how many of you brought them along. If you have it, take along. If not, there is some here on the front chair. If anyone wants this worksheet, you can be free to come and get it. Or I don't know if anybody wants to put their hand up. Someone could give it to you too. But it's a discipline in personal finances, and it has a number of questions under various disciplines. <clears throat> Jesus taught, someone, someone uh, studied this, Jesus taught 38 parables, 16 of them, dealt with money. He said more about money than he did about heaven or hell combined. The word believe occurs 272 times in the Bible. The word pray occurs 371 times. Love, 714 times. 652 verses deal with prayer and faith. And over 2,000 verses deal with money and possessions. Now, that's not that money is more important. 
it's that money is less important, but because it's such a perfect, perfect rival to God that Jesus speaks a lot on money and possessions. But one other thing it means is that even in two messages, we can just brush the top of this topic. We can't nearly get into all the areas we could get into. Okay, a little bit of review. Discipline and personal finances. The first discipline was stewardship. And does anybody remember what does a steward do? What does a steward do? Takes care of someone's stuff. Is it your own stuff? Well, it works. Someone else's stuff, okay? Someone's going to say that over here. Good. What is the rival of stewardship? Ownership. Ownership. Very good. And what is the most important thing required of a steward? Faithfulness. Okay. The way it's going, don't put your hand up. Just blurt it out, okay? Put your hand up. You might not get to say it. Okay, that was the number one. The most important thing I wanted to get across is that we're stewards of, we are not owners. We're not owners of anything we have. Everything we have has been given by God for a purpose. We are to use it for him, and we are actually going to be held accountable for how we use it. That is stewardship. The number two discipline is acquiring, which is basically work or um, labor. And the question I ask, is work a necessary evil? And we can, no, it's not. Work is not part of the curse. Work is a part of creation. And number two, is the Lord's work more important than having a good work ethic? And again, we would say, no, it is not. In fact, if you don't have a good work ethic, you're probably not effective in the Lord's work. The two run together. And then we had just a little bit of discussion. What are some unacceptable occupations for a Christian? And we'll let that you answer that. The number three discipline that we talked about last time was spending. What one character quality is necessary to curb our spending? Contentment. Good. That will take care of a lot of our spending. Okay, what social situations hinder us from spending frugally? Peer pressure. Did you did you remember that, or do you have it written down? <laughs> I was wondering how many would remember that. And uh, next question: What activities can divert our time and money away from God, besides shopping, which was mentioned last time? <laughs> yes, sports and hobbies. I said can divert. Not that sports and hobbies are all wrong. Recognize, And then for what reason should that not be an option? And we actually didn't discuss that. And uh, someone else, someone had said to me later on, they were a little disappointed I didn't get into that. They thought it could make a message on that sometime. But uh, I decided to stay out of some areas to, uh, to salvage maybe a little bit of a, maybe a little bit of reputation in front of you. <laughs> No, it's not that bad. Okay. Now we'll start there. Um, I'm going to speak a little bit about spending yet before I'm going to go into the next discipline of saving. Uh, we had talked about Mr. and Mrs. Thing, as you remember, last time. And Okay. But debt, yes, I'm going to speak a little bit about that. For I was speaking to youth as I had originally prepared this topic, and for youth, my earnest counsel is don't. Don't go into debt. Uh, not for a car, possibly for an education, depending on the situation, 
If you start a business or buy a house, seek much wise counsel to navigate those potentially dangerous financial waters. On the discipline of spending, we tend to admire people who, though they have lots of wealth, they have not changed their lifestyle all that much, even as their wealth increased and they became more more prosperous and they had more funds. Their lifestyle did not change all that much. We sort of tend to admire people like that. One example is Sam Walton. Anybody know who Sam Walton is? The Walmart, the one who uh, started that. I'm going to read something uh, about it. One example is Sam Walton when his business was worth $6 billion plus. He could have, as a journalist said, he could have lolled around Palm Springs. He could have whooped it up in New York. He could take the sun off Monte Carlo. He could drive a Lamborghini Roadster. He could drape his wife in sables or build his own Taj Mahal in a Ozark mountaintop, as Rock D. Feller's grandson did. Thus far, Walton has exercised none of these options. This was written in 1990, when he was still living. To the despair of the nation's decorators, he lives in a modest house in a small town in Arkansas, a few blocks from one of his warehouses. He keeps a dusty pickup in his driveway, a dusty Chevy sedan in the garage, and a couple of muddy muddy bird dogs in the yard. Each weekday, after breakfast at a local day's inn, he drives the pickup, missing two hubcats, to his office, a cubicle of 6 by 12 feet. There, beside a sectorial, sectarial pool, amid stacks of papers, he settles in at his desk furniture that one visitor describes as having an early Holiday Inn look. Walton once wrote, a lot of what goes on these days with high-flying companies and those overpaid CEOs who are really just saluting from the top and aren't watching out for anybody but themselves really upsets me. It is one of the main things wrong with American business today. Well, that is one example. Let's look at another example. This is a Christian example that I found in the book God's Smuggler. Brother Andrew is an, a biography of Brother Andrew. When he went from Holland over to England, he initially stayed with a Mr. Hopkins. Mr. Hopkins was a successful contractor, but he lived on a penury. He gave 90% of his income away to various missions. Brother Andrew said this man was utterly without self-consciousness. When Andrew went with him out to various work crews around the city, Brother Andrew would beg him, as president of the company, to at least put a coat on with elbows in it. His response was, why, Andy, nobody knows me here. Now, he would go to church dressed in a similar fashion, and Andrew would protest. He'd laugh and say, Andy, my boy, everybody knows me here. So what am I saying? Am I saying we should all drive old pickup trucks with wheel covers missing and wear coats with the elbows worn out? Not, I did not say that, and I am not saying that. What I am saying is we can check our lifestyles. Our lifestyle does not need to go up significantly when funds become more available. And I could speak more about lifestyle, but I think... The alternative will be addressed later on in the last discipline here. Easy come, easy go should never be said of a steward of God. I don't think it can be said of a steward of God. And that brings us to the next discipline. Number four discipline is saving. Should a Christian save? As a steward of the resources God gives you, does he want you to save some of it? And the answer is yes. Yes. There are exceptions, of course. There will be some extraordinary difficult family financial situations. There will be some full-time missionary situations, work. 
But you should never earn your money and spend everything you get. Now, I was speaking to young people when I initially had this topic, and I want to explain to a little bit how finances work. Um, this came right out of uh, Gary Miller's book, so it might not be new to some of you. Okay, that is, um, this is how much money is earned in this graph. And we're going to start 20 and 30 and 40. This is the age of an individual. And all these things are approximate. So a teenager begins to work and he earns a living. And his wages go up as time goes on. And then as he gets older, it begins to drop. That's the normal, typical. Now, his expenses of a young man will be very low at first. It may spike if he buys a vehicle, something like that. And uh, I'm a little bit off. Let me start over here again. When do you normally get married? Okay. When you get married, this is the area where you have extra income. When someone gets married, generally for a number of years with the mortgage payment, everything it takes, most of what they have, this varies, of course. Then by the time they reach middle age, things get paid off and their expenses go down faster than their income. And there is, again, a discretionary income. That is the area where um, is a unique area early in life most of the time, and it could be different for a for a woman than a man. But uh, I think similar things apply. Larry Burkett, when he role played with his sons, that was years and years ago. He told his sons, and his sons were uh, probably young teens. They weren't even driving age yet. They were young teens. And he told them that he's going to give them $2,400 a month. Now, I'm making up a figure. I don't know exactly what it was. He said, I'm going to give you $2,400 a month, and you're going to have to make a living on that. And they said, wow, that's a lot of money. I'm going to buy a Corvette. Then he said, okay, okay. But first, you're going to have to uh, live on this money. $2,240 comes off in the tithe. Then you're going to have to pay your mortgage. Then you're going to have to pay your, um, let me see what I have written down, taxes, housing, food, transportation, clothing, dental, medical, school for children, recreation, miscellaneous. And by the time he was done and telling us how much it takes to make a living, they were thinking, well, I hope I can afford a Chevette. Now, most of you don't know what a Chevette is. A Chevette is the bottom end of a Chevy lineup. You could buy one for about 3000 back then. Point is, what he was making is you should prepare for your future to some degree as you are younger. Young people need the discipline of how to save some of their money. Now, how much is controversial? One father, if a young man comes to him for a daughter, and if that young man has $10,000 in the bank, that, young, that father will say, I'll send that young materialist packing. And if that same young man goes to another father for a daughter, and that father says, if he doesn't have at least $10,000 in the bank, he's not even ready to start a courtship. So this is a controversial area, okay? I acknowledge that. The point is, in your youth, you have opportunities that you will never have again. 
in both opportunity to serve, opportunity to develop healthy, lifelong habits. And I tell you, one of those habits is not spending the money as it comes. It is in serving. You have more time. It is in giving. You have more money. And it is in saving because you will need it for the future. And it's, and many, as if we could probably a few other areas. Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to read a few verses here, verses 24 to 26, and then also a little later. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, how they don't spin and sow and, and all that. And then down at verse 33, the same chapter. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now this passage seemed to be difficult sometimes for youth, as it seemed to say, don't think about the future. That's what it seemed to say. Take no thought for the morrow. Don't worry about it. Just put it out of your mind. Just today. <clears throat> Live with an open hand and God will take care of you. Well, God may take care of you with other people who have planned for the future. <laughs> Think that could happen. Take no thought is more accurately portrayed as to not worry or to be anxious. Don't be a Martha. That's the same word. She was careful. She was fretful. She was anxious. That's the same word. It means don't wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and worry about an unknown future. Don't do that. Don't be fretful and anxious about the future. Instead, do what Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 6. Be careful for nothing. That word, be careful, is the same word, take no thought, same Greek word. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. We all, we will have future needs. It is not ungodly to consider them and do some planning. That is why we have wills. You should have one if you are, if you are a father. Plan for the needs of our special children. Have a rainy day fund of some kind. Consider your needs or the needs of your spouse when you can no longer work or earn a living. Do some planning, but don't be anxious and don't worry about it. Anything can happen. You cannot meet the needs of every possible scenario. You hear or you see something happen in someone else's life. A catastrophic thing that happens in someone else's life. And it can strike fear in your heart. What if that happens to me? Don't let it make you anxious. God will take care of you. So some planning is needed. But don't be anxious about the unknowns and the what-ifs and that kind of thing. When, uh, when, you're, when you get anxious, think on the words of Jesus, to not be anxious. Aren't you worth more than the sparrows? Quiet your fretful heart and do like Mary did and sit at the feet of Jesus. And have a quiet, restful heart. So, save now for big purchases that he expect to come. Don't borrow to buy a car. Save for it. Save for a down payment for a house. Now, 
don't save like the rich man did here in Luke chapter 12. You, you can turn there if you wish to, but I'm going to read a, a lengthy passage, a familiar one. Luke chapter 12, don't save like this rich man did. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. And Jesus, and he spoke a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I had no room wherewith to bestow my fruit? And he said, This I will do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Don't save like this rich man did. Don't save so you can retire and take it easy. Go to Florida and play shuffleboard. Jesus says, don't do that. That you do some planning, good. Not with this intent. God says, don't do this. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So here we have, um, let me see our paper. Discipline, number four discipline. Why should you save in your youth? Anybody have an answer for that? Anybody want to summarize? Or does everybody disagree with me? (laughs) Yes. Good. You have more discretionary income, and you can expect the needs will be greater in the future. Right. Okay. Good. What other ways can you prepare for the future as a youth? And we mentioned them. There'd be several different ones. Yes. You mentioned uh, time and saving and giving are two things that should be larger proportion. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that missing element. I had not even, I had thought of serving in various capacities, but I had not thought of preparing yourself by studying in the Word. Very good point. That's one thing you can do in your youth also. I know as an early Christian, I was young married when I got born again, I thought all my youth I, I could have been in the Word and I wasted it. I've been in it since, but I wasted my youth when it comes to being in the Word. So in your youth, let's go over what other ways can prepare for your future. You can develop good, healthy habits of saving, giving, serving, and studying. We're going to add that one to it. I don't know if anybody has any more, but that's what I would have. What is a wrong purpose to save? Is there any wrong purpose to save? To, to eat, drink, and be merry. Okay. Save now so you don't have to work later. If you save now and you get in the place where you can serve later, that's different. 
but to just take it easy. That's right. That's a wrong purpose to save, and God tells us to not do that. So if you, if, if anyone, and I, I know people, I know people who end up at the end of life very, very wealthy with possessions. And I could name you some of them. It really comes down to the heart. It really does. Um, whether they, um, and I'm thinking of several people that have not used their wealth in their, both their lifestyle or to just slack off and take it easy but they have used it to free themselves up for ministry and other things like that. Okay, let's go to the last discipline, which is number five discipline, giving. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For ye know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. John Wesley was actually a very wealthy man. He received a lot of royalties from his writings and his books. At one time, at one point of time, he gave away 50,000 pounds of sterling silver. Now, I didn't get the exact, um, what do you call that, conversion, yes. <laughs> but I think it was millions of dollars in today's money at one point in time. When he died, his estate was worth 28 pounds. That's how much he had left. He was the man who gave us this saying, get all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Get all you can means the good work ethic we talked about. Have a good work ethic. You can earn a lot of money if you have a job and you apply yourself. Get it. Save all you can deals with our spending habits. It talks about contentment and not needing to uh, have a lot of other things. And give all you can is an expression of where our hearts really are because we live in a needy world gary miller re- relates this story of overhearing two young men on a construction site one had gone out to a local steakhouse the night before and he was telling the other youth about the experience it was awesome he said the food was great and it was a really nice place the other man turned and asked with interest so how much did it cost Oh, it was about $20 a plate, but it was worth it. The food was really good. Now, Gary Miller is thinking, said, This brief discussion played on my mind for several days. $20 a plate, but it was worth it. That was the thought that went around in his mind. $20 a plate, but it was worth it. How do you decide whether something is worth it or not? And this is Gary talking. I pictured many conditions in the world and what $20 could do. Medical clinics turn people away due to lack of funds. Believers go without Bibles due to lack of resources. More than 15 people die from hunger every minute, and 75% of them are children. Is a $20 steak worth it? In the middle of this overfed, overindulgent, overweight culture, how do we know the value of $20? And he just goes on. He said, these Two young men were not selfish or uninterested in helping, is his, his evaluation. He said they had just been shielded from global reality. And then he said, I believe God is calling this generation to self-denial in ways that perhaps your parents have not considered. Paul told the church at Galatia, as we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. There are many, many needs in this world. And the gospel needs to go forth. Not everybody has heard. Salvation has come, but not all have heard. Locally, there are many serving organizations like the Community Care Center, the Haiti Benefit Auction, and CAM. The last message, I had challenged you 
to not look over advertising magazines of merchandise. Because what that tends to do, and you have need for it, and there's a place for that. But if you just browse them, it, it creates a discontent in your heart. It's not, it does not lead you the right direction to just browse magazines. I'd like to encourage us now, instead of browsing through catalogs filled with merchandise, browse through newsletters filled with needs and filled with the hurting and the poor of this world. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 21, is this, well, some people say it's not a parable, but Jesus talking, that there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, we know the story, don't we? Lazarus died. He went to paradise. The rich man died, and he went to this place that was burning, tormented. Now, what do we get from this? That poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell? Is that what we get? No, that's not what we get from this. That's not what God is saying. But he is saying something, isn't he? It's God saying something in his parable. This rich man had someone that he could have helped and he didn't. It says something about the heart. You know, we can't meet all the needs in this world, can we? In fact, it seems overwhelming. I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed with all the needs of this world. But we can meet some of them. What does God say? He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you invest in the kingdom of God, your heart will follow. You know, how many youth say, my prayer life is dry. My walk with God is not close, nor is it sweet. I struggle so much with my thoughts and my actions. Well, I'm not going to give you a silver bullet, but I'm going to give you a suggestion. I believe it will work. I believe it will help. If you invest in the kingdom of God, your heart will follow your investment. You will become more spiritually sensitive when you sacrifice your spending money to the needs of others. Your own personal problems that you have won't look as big as you see and get involved into the seemingly insurmountable problem that other people have. And your own problem won't look as big anymore. If you could see the Syrian refugee crisis and what some of those people do and have been in those camps for years and years, or the brutality of the ISIS regime, does it matter if your potatoes don't have enough salt? Or that you don't have a sweater that your friend has? Or a pickup truck? Or whatever it is. I think John D. Martin said this story years ago. It's one of those stories when someone dies and goes to heaven and they get, they come to heaven and it's, it's not a, it's, it's just a scenario made up. So he comes to heaven and St. Peter, he sees all these mansions up there. Wow! You know, I got my own mansion too, you know, but St. Peter led him to an way out of the back place. And there was a couple boards kneeled together. That was his mansion. And he said, well, what's the deal here? Well, he said, well, I just used the materials you sent ahead. <laughs> Your treasures you sent ahead. We need to remember, it's usually not the amount. It's the sacrifice that puts the treasure in heaven. The amount helps here, but God gauges the sacrifice that we do and give. 
Okay, you can turn to First uh, Timothy chapter 6. We're going to talk about us today. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 19. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, and that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. I'm going to read that in the, uh, I think it's the um, English Standard Version, I believe. The same verses. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on, uncertain, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And, of course, we could ask the question, who are the rich in this present age? Rich is a little bit comparative. If we say in this room, who's rich? We compare and... There was just a different, some of us are poor and some of us are richer. And But if we take, of course, the world in perspective, then we are all rich. We are all rich. Paul was telling Timothy, and he's giving him a very specific direction about rich people. He's telling them what to not do, and he's telling them, what to do. Um, I thought I had it down here, but anyhow, that word charge, as for the rich, charge them not to be haughty. That word charge is most of the time translated commanded or command. So it's actually a commandment. It could also be likened to a summons. You get summoned to a court. You have to obey. You don't have a choice. So when we talk about um, the Lord Jesus, when he went to heaven and and he gave the, the great commission, he said, and teach them to do whatsoever things I have commanded you. Here is one of the commandments. This is a commandment. What rich people are not to do and what they are to do. If you're not rich, then this does not apply to you. If you are rich, this applies to you. What shall rich people not do? Well, it says they should not be haughty. High-minded is the way it is made in the, uh, in the King James. Why is that? Well, rich people, did you ever notice this? Rich people tend to look down on poor people. Is that right? If you're successful... Or you think you're successful and someone else is not. What is the natural response in your heart? It's to be haughty. High-minded. Paul told Timothy to command the rich, don't do that. Don't look down on poor people. That's one thing rich people are not to do. Paul also told them to not set, the rich people not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Do you see a shift here uh, or budding God? (laughs) If we have securities in money, wherever it is, our we can actually feel secure in our riches rather than feel secure 
in the love and uh, and the care of our God. That's the normal thing. That's actually one of the big things that money does to rich people. It changes their focus. It changes their um, security. And it, instead of we're trusting God, instead of God, you have my best interest in mind, God, you will take care of me. Now we have this and say, okay, I'm good to go. And our focus shifts. And God says through Paul, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't put your trust in uncertain riches. And he says they're uncertain. They may not be there. We have all heard of stories. I mean that billions and billions of dollars that people have lost their life savings. And their riches are uncertain. But trust God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So that's what we're not to do. Not to um, be haughty. Not to be uh, proud of our riches or our abilities. And not to uh, trust our riches. So what should we do? Well, first thing is you should trust God. God is God. He will not change. He will take care of you. That's not to take away that you don't do some planning. Understand that. But God will take care of you. What else? Well, we are to do good. Rich people are to do good. To be rich. Imagine, rich people are told to be rich in good works. Rich people have an ability that some poor people don't have. Some people, I mean, it takes most of their life with their nose at the grindstone just to eck out a living. They have little resources. They can pray but they don't have the abilities that rich people do. Rich people have resources that are useful in God's kingdom. So, rich people, do good. Be rich in good works. And I'm using the, the uh, English Standard Version. Be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves. Thus building up that mansion in heaven rather than that little shack that you might get otherwise. Of course, that's just a story. Okay. I want to give, in conclusion, a word of caution. I'm getting pretty practical in some ways here. I do not want us to be judgmental or critical of each other and our lifestyles. I'm going to make a disclaimer here. You may take liberties in some areas that I don't. And I may take liberties, what you feel as liberties in some areas that you wouldn't. And we need to allow some of that. We're not all going to have the same values, okay? My hobbies are not going to be your hobbies. But while I'm saying that, We need to be open to be challenged by each other. We need to have that too. Without a judgmental or critical spirit. It's okay if you to come to me and ask me questions about my lifestyle or some purchases I have made. It's okay for you to do that. To come to me. I'm giving you that privilege. And it needs to be okay that I can come to you and do the same thing. I should be able to hear you and not be upset that you came to me. And my burden is that we help each other shift our focus from a materialistic society to the eternal kingdom. That's the burden. That's behind this whole thing. That's the burden. And we can help each other in doing that. So be careful about that attitude and judgment about each other. But we need to be open to be challenged and corrected in that area. Okay, I'm going to have a little bit of review here. I'm going to go over it. Uh, the first discipline was stewardship. I'm going to read a verse. Psalms 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. 
Everything is God's. Number two, discipline is acquiring. And First Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12, and that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, that ye may have lack of nothing. In other words, you don't need to be a beggar because you do your own work. Number three discipline is spending. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Number four, discipline, saving. Here I'm going to use a uh, common, uh, not a common, but an expression I heard already. Weak point in message pulpit. I couldn't think of any scripture verse that teaches us to save except maybe this one, where it talks, Paul talked about that the fathers, the children should not save for the fathers, but fathers should save for the children. So I'm being honest. Maybe you have a scripture verse that comes better than that. We have many scriptures that warn against accumulation and storing up wealth, whether it's in money or possessions. But in practical terms, it is wisdom to save in a future need, such as a car or a home or where you can no longer work. But the right heart will affect what kind of car you drive, what kind of house you live in, or your lifestyle in old age. Number five discipline is giving. And Matthew 6 19 to 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's the whole point of this message, really. All the instruction that's been given will not be effective unless God has your heart and you have God's heart. Well, may the Lord bless you as you, uh, maybe this can just be the beginning of a discussion since we could only brush the top of a topic like this. So may God bless you.